0: Sorry, it's kind of loud, but um, so we're we're starting a new study tonight, going through the Old Testament, and more than going verse by verse through every verse in the Old Testament. That's not exactly what I've got in got in mind. Um, more, what we what we're going to be doing is uh, taking a look closely at. the the culture that is uh, around the people of Israel as we go through the Bible. So it's kind of going through, yes, it is going through the books of the Bible, but it's, it's also zooming out and looking at the world around the scenes that are taking place in the text. Because believe it or not, some of them matter a great deal. Now I call this a new study, and it's it's not totally disconnected from what we've just been doing. We've been looking at um, the the basically at God Himself, knowing who God is, and we. We kind of sought to uncover that a little bit, and we did for a long time. And then we moved into what who we are as people, and we discovered, you know, being made in the image of God. We talked about what that means, and then the next thing we saw is that we're we're fallen, we've sinned, and, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we're in this um, state of, of being uh, condemned as sinners. And so now, what we're seeing, gonna what we're gonna see play out in the Old Testament is really here is fallen humanity. In need of a Savior, and here's God in His interaction with fallen humanity as He creates a people for Himself that He aims to save. And uh, so I, I, we want to see that play out over the course of the Old Testament. So it's not entirely disconnected from where we came, and it will prepare us for where we're going to be at the end of this, um, but, but it's, it's, a, it's a nice little break in the middle where we can actually dive into the Old Testament. And I have some goals for this study, and I want to just kind of go through them so that we can understand what the goals are. First, I want to familiarize ourselves with the world of the Old Testament. There is a, a, a reason why uh, it's, it's invaluable to set foot on the ground in Israel, to actually be there and to see some of the sites. There's a reason why that's, why that's really valuable and important. Um, it causes the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, to come to life in a way that is very hard to just uh, get when you, when you simply read the text. It, it, it causes the images, uh, real-life images, to float by your brain as you're reading. R- Richard, is that fair? Uh, you, Vicki, you, you've been there, you, you've seen. Has anybody been to Israel? Anybody? Just the two? Okay, just, just okay. Um, so it, it, it causes when you read things like the about the Sea of Galilee or certain um, geo- geographical places, it causes those places to come to the forefront of your mind, and they're 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 real in a way that's very hard to get otherwise. And so um, one thing that I'm hoping that we can do is is through a study like this, get familiar enough with the area of the Old Testament that. When we read, it's not as uh, scary, and there's some real-life things that we can connect to. And hopefully you'll see that bear out over the course of this study. That's, that's w- at least one of the goals, as we get familiar with the world. What settings were they in, and, and, and what, did it, what did it look like? What did the place look like? And when we see he's the king of this area, what, what is that? What does that mean? Are we looking at a palace, or what, what kind of area are we looking at? Um, The second goal that I have is to remove the fear of the geography, the names, and timelines of the Old Testament. To remove the fear of the geography, the names, and the timelines of the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but that's one of the things, even for me to this day, that's one of the most difficult aspects of reading the Old Testament. Sometimes the New Testament, too, but mostly the Old Testament. You get to the Jebusites, the, the Hittites, the, the parasites, the, the termites, and the, all the other ites that you start reading about in the Old Testament, and, and you go, I don't know anything about these people. I don't know where they are. And then they'll say something like, oh, he was born in this region. And you know that that's important, but you don't know why. And it just sort of kind of goes over your head. And so along the way, I hope to at least make it simple enough where we are not scared of the geography. We kind of get the lay of the land and understand uh, the big movements that are happening in Scripture. But also some of the names become familiar to us. And we start to think about where those connections are throughout the Bible. And then we also get familiar with the timelines. Uh, that's one of the hard parts is like, here's Abraham walking onto the scene. But when is Abraham? When are we talking about here? And I, I think establishing a, a decent timeline can be really helpful. And then uh, along the way, pointing out some resources that can be really helpful for you. For instance, like a, um, a, some, of, some of us don't even know probably this exists, but an encyclopedia of the Bible. Uh, I use, you'll find on my computer right now on the screen is the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. they're wonderful it's a wonderful resource you can get it in a print copy and if you can spare i don't know 50 bucks or so you run across some of these names and you go to the index you find the name you go to it it tells you everything about the significance of that site uh why it's important what we found there recently those kinds of things and it and it just kind of opens the world of the old testament in a way um that you wouldn't have otherwise and so uh but this study hopefully will will kind of expose some of those things uh, the third thing is to trace God's activity through salvation history, and line up the politics of the land with the biblical story. So we're going to trace God's activity through salvation history and line up the politics. And there's there's uh, <laughs> there's uh, two pieces of that. One is the politics that are going on in the scenes. Those are really important as we look at what's going on in the nations around. Like, you're giving me this weird look. We'll probably stay out of modern politics. This will be ancient politics. But, um, but, but when, you, when you look at um, the, the things that are going on in the nations around Israel at the time. The passage comes to life in a way that you wouldn't, that you would otherwise just gloss over. A common example that I use a lot is Isaiah 7, uh, when we, we know this passage. It's uh, for uh, the, behold, the, the virgin will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And uh, so we know that verse mainly because Matthew quotes it in the New Testament, so many people quote it in the New Testament, that, that this is in relation to whom? To Jesus, right? But when you go back to Isaiah 7.14 and you look at the political turmoil that's happening around Ahaz at the time, Ahaz is terrified. And we'll go over this in a a few years. Uh, (laughs) I know, uh, when we get there. But um, Ahaz is terrified. He's shaking in his boots because the king in the north, in the the northern kingdom, and the king of Damascus have band together to stop Assyria. Assyria is this big threat in the east. And, and they're terrifying everybody. And so the nations are like, we can't, no, none of us can defeat Assyria. So the only way we can do anything about this is if we just if we band together. We'll create a pact. Well, Ahaz isn't wanting to play along. Because Assyria, he says, well, I think it would be better if I was buddy with Assyria than, than to be buddy with them and try to defeat Assyria. And so he, he's like, I think I want to be friends with them. And these two kings in the north go, if you do that, we will not only do we take you out, but we'll put a puppet king on the throne who will do whatever we want. And so Ahaz is terrified. And so he's thinking, well, maybe I should join with, uh, with the kings of the north. Maybe I should do that against... And so Isaiah is appointed by the Lord to come along in Isaiah chapter 7 and tell Ahaz, don't do it. Don't join with him in this pact. Because... Now, well, give, ask the Lord for a sign, and he'll, he'll give you a sign. Make it as high as heaven or as low as Sheol. Ask him for a sign, and he'll give it to you. And Ahaz gives this kind of really pious response, and he says, well, far be it from me to ever test the Lord. Well, it's a sin to not test the Lord if he tells you to test him, okay? So Ahaz says, says this really, makes this really pious statement, and, and Isaiah says, fine, he'll give you a sign anyway. The young woman will give birth to a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. And before he is of the age to determine good from evil, so that means when he's really young, he's, before he's two years old, those two kings in the north will be dead. So then we, it, asks, it raises the question, What? how does that relate to Jesus? <laughs> right? So we have to, we have to do those kinds of things, but it's helpful to understand the political situation that's happening so that that passage actually makes sense to the people that it was written to, Right? And so then we, start, well, then we have to ask the question, well, how does that relate to Jesus? And so we have to then go and why does Matthew quote this in relation to Jesus? And we can talk about that when we get there because that leads us down another rapid trail. <laughs> but but, um, but th- those kinds of settings are really important. And so that's part of it is the politics. The other is the salvation history that's going on in the narrative itself. How these events early on connect to what the New Testament writers are picking up on. What John is picking up on in Revelation, how John is tying the ends of the story together as these kind of these openings have been made, these pathways have been made in the Old Testament, how John is bringing them together in Revelation. And, and all of that is, is some things that I want to do in this, in this study. And then the last thing is, uh, is go to Israel. Um, so my hope is that at the, by the time we get to the end of this, will be ready to kind of set foot on the ground in Israel. So as many as can go, uh, I, I would hope, would. Right now the dates that we have set are in March, and I'll send out some communication uh, here at the beginning of the year to help prepare that. That's March of not this year, of next year. So it would be a March of 2020 um, that we would want to go. It, it will be probably more expensive than, than, you, than you can do, and the reason is because the larger the group, the cheaper the rate and we won't be taking a large group. And so that larger groups help alleviate the cost. The benefit of taking a smaller group though is that your guide is like right here with you the entire way and you're on a bus together and you really build a lot of camaraderie as a team. So it's really helpful, but that's the plan is to go. Um, If the trip doesn't make, then it doesn't make. I can't do anything about that, but I will be uh, uh, trying anyway to put together a trip um, for next March. Um, Okay, so with that being said, The first thing that we need to do is identify some key places that are going to pop up in the Old Testament. and Really, I think there's four key places that come to mind. First of all is Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a a region, and it's really, really important in the Old Testament history because uh, the vast majority of Israel's uh, enemies come from the region of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means between the rivers. So it literally means between the rivers. And what it, where it's located is between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And so uh, you'll see on a map here, I've got, hopefully you can see this. Um, you see right here is the Persian Gulf. Uh, Israel would be over. Can you see my red pointer? No. Down by Syrian desert? You see it? See it? See it? See it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Over here on the left side of the screen, Israel's back over this way, all right, and sort of down. Um, But here is, this is the Mesopotamian region, all the way from the Persian Gulf here, all the way up and around. And uh, most, of the, most of the people at the beginning of really, really, when people start to settle here, uh, are settled down here by the Persian Gulf. But then they, they start to kind of fill out this entire region. And they're settling in between two rivers. Why? It's fertile. Plain and simple. Uh, it's fertile. You settle by rivers. You settle by water. You settle by fresh water. So that you have water to, to drink, water to irrigate with. Uh, so you find early on, especially before irrigation becomes a a, a known thing, uh, you find people gathering near rivers. And, uh, of course, um, that's where it's a, a huge uh, area. But what you're going to see is uh, both, uh, I said Israel's enemies, you're going to see uh, Babylon, which is right here in the middle, right in the cotton-picking middle of the screen. You see Babylon? Okay. Assyria is back over here. Um, so you're looking at two of the biggest enemies of the Israelites over here to the east of the land. OK? So uh, OK, so well, let me get my pointer here, if I can. OK, So I'm right in the middle. I'm right by Babylon. Okay. Babylon sits on the Euphrates. Oh, so here's the Euphrates. Here's the Tigris. Tigris is go up. Here's Tigris, and here is. Uh, Osir, which is uh, Assyria. Assyria is in this area right here. Okay? So Assyria sits on the Tigris. Babylon sits on the Euphrates. Okay? So, um, and what we'll find is down here at the south, down here towards the mouth by the Persian Gulf, here is, you see this town right here? What is that? Ur? Yes. Ur? Yes. All right. Ur is where, who is from? Abram. Abram. All right. We'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, so... And there's some significance there. There's some big things coming up in the, in the text just from him being in that place. Um, okay, so here's Mesopotamia, between the rivers, a huge, a, a huge piece. That's a, that's a, uh, the, that area is a large percentage of the Old Testament is taking place in, with towns that are located in this area. Um, next, we have Egypt. Uh, Egypt, obviously, most of you are going to be familiar with the the region, uh, the country of uh, the nation of Egypt, and it lies south of the Promised Land, and and it also features prominently in the Old Testament story. But here's the here's the interesting thing about Egypt. Now, theologically, when we start to connect the dots theologically to Egypt, Egypt plays a significant role, not just as a place, but the Egyptians. Uh, but but it, the Egyptians and the Exodus, those two stories, the Egyptians and the Exodus, or those, the, the people and the, the story of the Exodus, they function as a type of captor. And, and especially when it comes to the Exodus, you're going to see a lot of Exodus imagery coming in Revelation. You'll see a lot of plagues come in to Revelation. You're going to see some of the same plagues that we saw hit Egypt in the Exodus come back in Revelation. Why? Because Jesus is depicted as leading an Exodus. Uh, He is leading his people out of the world, really, and away from captivity. And so Egypt functions as this captor, this slaveholder that's holding people hostage and, and sin is, is functions as that, that, um, that captor. So, uh, It's been interesting to see how the minor prophets are all over it, too. They're, yes. They're reminding them all the time. Yes. Have you forgotten Egypt? Yeah, have you forgotten Egypt? Egypt is, is that constant reminder of sin and captivity and the things that we're now captive to, that we, it was just like what we were captive to back then. And so, you, you, there's an interesting, uh, uh, in the Mount of Transfiguration, This happens in, uh, I think it's just the three Gospels. It could also be John as well, but I think it's just the three synoptic Gospels. You have uh, the the image of of Jesus being transfigured before his disciples. You remember this, right? It's only in Luke when uh, Moses and Elijah show up together with Jesus on the mountain. It's only in Luke that he says, and, and I've got it notated down there, but G- Jesus has said, it, it, Luke tells us what they were talking about. He tells us what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about. And he says they were talking about Jesus' departure. But the word that, the, that, the, that Luke uses is his exodus. They're talking about his upcoming exodus. And so here is Moses talking with Jesus about his upcoming Exodus. And it, it, it seems apparent, as John brings this imagery back in Revelation, that the Exodus that he's talking about is rescuing his people from captivity and sin and bondage and breaking them out of hell, essentially, is is, is the, the picture there. And so um, the Exodus imagery and the imagery of the Egyptians come back time and time again throughout the book of Revelation. So uh, there's Egypt, which is obviously the land, but then throughout the Old Testament it's going to feature prominently as... Uh, as a, a, a reminder of the bo- of bondage and what bondage is like, so that blank is? which one the it blank is. the subpoint? Yeah, the subpoint is Egyptians and the Exodus. Um. So you can see here. Uh, you obviously know um, where Egypt is, but you can see again right here the Nile River and all the way east and west. Has a, a, a massive amount of population and fertile soil around it. Um, now, the third place is Palestine. Now, um, you the, this this land obviously Palestine is is also referred to as the Promised Land several times. You'll hear it referred to as Israel. You'll hear it referred to as Canaan, the land of Canaan. Um, but this uh, area, the Promised Land, is. Um, where God's descendants are, are, are sent. It's where the vast majority of the Old Testament um, is, is uh, centered around. Now, it's called Palestine. You know why it's called Palestine? Why do they call it Palestine? It's a modern rendering of the word Philistines. So, um, yeah, so Palestine. Now, uh, the, uh, so, the, so the next blank there is the country which in most minds is associated with Israel came to be known as Palestine after the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. Um, the, it, 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 this is obviously, there's, there's several things that are really quite fascinating just about Israel itself and how God has actually uh, used this land for his people Right down the middle, or right, right down on the, on the uh, I guess that would be the eastern side, right here, you see this? There's the Sea of Galilee right there, tiny little dot, all the way down to the Dead Sea. Down here, you see it? Right between is the Jordan River. This is uh, the Great Rift right here, the, the Rift Valley. You know what the significance of the Rift Valley is? So the plains start out here by the Mediterranean Sea, and they gradually get higher and higher. But because of the rift valley, because there's a there's a there's a massive rift in the crust of the earth right here, the topography of this land, and this goes all the way down into Africa, this rift does. But um, the the topography of this land means that the Sea of Galilee starts at about 600 feet above sea level, and it and from there it. Uh, uh, below sea level, I said above, it's below, and it plummets all the way down to the Dead Sea, which at its lowest point is 2,500, about 2,500 feet below sea level. And what that means is that Israel can grow almost anything it wants. So down by the Dead Sea is a lot of tropical areas because it's so far below sea level, where up by the Sea of Galilee is uh, kind of more of a plush area where they can grow a, a lot of other more common things. Uh, would be up here, and then it also that rift also creates a lot of high mountainous regions, so you have naturally divided territory where people can uh, settle in groups, uh, which is obviously going to be used later on and uh, and you 'll see in the land of Canaan when they go in, there are people where are they get ga- how are they gathered they 're gathered in little city states, states along the way right they 're not uh, unified together because well the Land doesn't lend itself to that. It's sort of mountainous. And you'll see, uh, hopefully if we get to go there, uh, you get up on top of a mountain and you can see forever. You can see, like, the. you get up on top of a mountain near the Sea of Galilee and you can see almost all of Jesus' ministry right there. It's fascinating. So, um, all right. Now, all of this together is called the Fertile Crescent. Okay? You can see the shape. Oh, you can't see it. I'll show it here in just a second. There it is. You can see the shape is sort of in the shape of a crescent. So you've got the fertile crescent that's right here. Pretty much all of the Old Testament takes place somewhere in that green area. All right. So virtually any place you hear uh, mentioned in scripture is going to be somewhere in that area. Some of the enemies are going to be right out here in the wilderness, just to the east. But the vast majority of everything else is going to be right here in the green um, so you have it all located right there. Now, uh, as far as the Fertile Crescent, um, the Palestinian area, uh, became really what, what is known as the bridge of the Fertile Crescent. So you've got the, the, the area where Israel dwells is the bridge that connects Egypt all the way up to the rest of the Fertile Crescent. Um, you have, let me see here, um, so what that means then is that Israel, is uh, their, their location allowed them to absorb the cultures and material benefits of all the nations that pass through um, that land and it allowed them to conduct business, allowed them various other opportunities. So the land that the Lord gives to Israel Israel is uniquely situated so that they can have the benefit of having a connection to both Mesopotamia and where a lot of the cultures are being established, and also naturally to Egypt. And they can have provision along the way, right? So the land is really fertile, both for a connection uh, out east and to the south. So it, it allows them a lot, of, um, a lot of benefit in that way. Does everybody got the blanks there? It was... Absorb the cultures and material benefits. Cultures and material benefits of all the nations. Yeah. Yeah, because think about it. I mean, you've got, you've got the two rivers that run this way and provide fertility for the land all the way up here. And then now you get, start getting into the Mediterranean Sea over here and then down here uh, the Jordan River and all of that in this area and then all down to the Nile. So you have plenty of, of food sources of growth and all of that in the land in that area. So it, it naturally became just this, this highway where you'd want to stay. You, did, you really didn't want to get out here in the wilderness, right? That was the, the least desirable spot where the children of Israel spent 40 years. Uh, I mean, can you imagine? Like, So you, the Exodus sort of brings to light a lot of things. They're out here in the wilderness in the brown area, all right? Brown, not a good color on maps, okay? But they're in the brown area, and they come up here and see a land flowing with milk and honey, and they're like, we'd rather take our chances out in the wilderness. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like the most desirable place you'd want to live, but, well, there you have it. There they are. Um, any questions about that? Comments, thoughts? All right. Uh, so let's look at a, a timeline. What's happening? Let's catch us up. Um, by the time we pick up the, we're going to pick up the story. We're going to really start with Abraham in about Genesis chapter twelve, uh, and we'll we'll probably re- we'll dive in really deep uh, ne- next time we meet. But uh, we'll kind of just touch on some things here. Um, as far as timeline goes, the Babylon up until this point, we're looking at about the year 2000, roughly the year 2000 BC up to about 1800 BC. That's kind of the window that we're in right about now. And when we pick up Abraham's story, Abraham is going to be, you'll see in a minute, Abraham's going to be somewhere between 2100 and 1900. Um, A lot of people think his birth date is somewhere in 2100. Some scholars think they've got it down to the year of when he was born. I'm not so sure about that. But sometime in that window between 2100 and 1900 is going to be his birth date. And so that's, that's about the area we're looking at. Well, in 1990... Um, that sounds weird, but 1990 B.C., uh, about the time Saved by the Bell was on, uh, (laughs) Babylon comes into power. Uh, But the city of Babylon has become this sort of powerful city in Mesopotamia and uh, where it originally had been the city of Ur down by the Persian Gulf. You'll remember that map that I showed you down by the Persian Gulf where Ur is. That's originally the power center of the Mesopotamian region. And Mesopotamia, Everybody's warring over Mesopotamia. They're all fighting over control of this area. And why? Because of the plentiful resources, right? But when you picture this time, don't picture massive kingdoms just yet. Don't picture these massive palaces with people spread out all over everywhere. They've got passports that say Babylonian citizen or whatever on them or anything like that. We're talking about small Groups of people, small um, city-states, really, that are gathered together... And it's not until, uh, well, the Akkadians come along and start to kind of unify some of them under one kind of citizenship and kingdom, and then Babylon comes by a little bit later on, and Assyria comes by a little bit later on, and start to try to unify these people into one big group. But before then, you're talking about little city-states. Remember we see in in, uh, in Genesis, Abraham is marching up and down the land of Canaan, he's got massive amounts of goats and sheep and, and cows and all these kind of people, these uh, animals with him. He's got all these sons, or these, these uh, servants, and 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 people with him and people fear him right like as he walks along with i don't know what amounts to hundreds of people around him like that's enough to kind of cause a little bit of panic whereas in our day and age if somebody walked across the border with hundreds of people that's that's not going to be well, maybe I shouldn't use that as an example, but that's probably a bad example. But let's say they walk across the Canadian border with with hundreds of people. Nobody's gonna be like nobody's gonna look at them and, and it strike fear into the heart of America in the sense of like, you know, that, that they're gonna take over. But here you have Abraham who's running up and down the land and he commands a lot of respect. And the reason is because we're talking about little small towns, and the kings of these small towns are pretty small people, right? Uh, You know, you can knock on his door. He didn't have secret service, right? Like, that's the kind of area that we're talking about. So so Babylon, the power center, begins to shift to the area of Babylon about 1990, roughly B.C. So they start to gain a little bit of uh, control. But Assyria... Sorry, let me go back. Assyria will also be vying for control shortly. So in about 1800, Assyria starts picking up momentum and they start vying for control as well. Remember, they sit on the, on the, the Tigris. And so they're going to start vying for control. And actually, Assyria will become a much more prominent empire before Babylon will. But in the meantime, uh, uh, Assyria is going to be also gaining a little bit of power in that uh, region as well. That's what's going on there Uh, during that time. But then as you move down to Egypt, um, Egypt through its 12th dynasty has begun to extend influence throughout not only the region around the Nile, but they've started to crawl up into Canaan, that area of Canaan, and started to exert their influence there. And they're starting to use Canaan to be able to get over to Mesopotamia because they want the stuff, the resources and the people that are over in Mesopotamia as well. So you have this... uh, Really, when, when Abraham is called, you have kind of two uh, regions with three big power centers, uh, e- Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria, starting to try to gain influence in that region and started to come, come into that region. And so it's, um, it's a pivotal time when God calls Abraham to that area because nobody really has control over that area just yet, not total control anyway. Um, so Palestine, during the time of Abraham, is made up of really nomadic peoples that are in city-states. So it's, it's ripe for the taking. There's, there's nobody that's really unified that area at all. And, uh, and so it's, it's sort of ripe for the taking when Abraham comes in. Now... So, like I said, Abraham is most likely, he comes on the scene somewhere between 2100 and 1900. A lot of people peg his birth sometime in the, in the 2100s. And probably the story we're picking up in Genesis is somewhere, um, somewhere shortly after that. And But what's interesting about uh, the time that Abraham is called, um, Abraham begins in where? Where did you say? Ur of the Chaldeans. And you can see that in Genesis chapter 11, the very end of chapter 11. And we'll go ahead and read that right now. Um, When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, In the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Isca. Now Sarai was barren; she had no child. Terah took Abram his son. And Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from, together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Okay, now you can see on this map... So did, did you get those? He settles in Haran with his family. Um, you can see on the map... Here's Ur. They're headed to the land of Canaan. They go up through the, through the Mesopotamian region and they settle right here in Haran. Okay? Everybody see that? Now, why? We, we actually are told why they moved from Ur of the Chaldeans. So they moved from what was formerly the power center in the Mesopotamian region. But Ur is also known for its worship of the moon god Sin. Ironically titled Sin. So uh, it's no, Ur is known for worship of, of, a moon, of the moon god Sin, who actually was worshipped up until the 13th century AD. Um, and then they moved to Haran, which is its sister city, which is also known for the worship of the moon god Sin why do they do this? Abraham was called in Ur. He was called by God here in Ur. Now, it doesn't look like that in the text in Genesis. But when we get to Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us. Let me get there. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The, glory, the, the, uh, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. That's the reason they're headed to Canaan. Right? He's, he, they're, they're headed to Canaan. Okay? But then he says, then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. He didn't make it to Canaan. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So he, he was called in Ur of the Chaldeans. They were going to Canaan, but they stopped in Haran and lived there. Now, why did they live there? Well, Joshua actually tells us in Joshua 24:2, uh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So it appears what happened, if we're piecing the text together, m- most likely, is that uh, Abraham gets the call from God to go to the land of Canaan. And so they're headed to the land of Canaan. Terah, not excited about that, as a worshiper of a pagan god, uh, sin. Okay? So where do they stop? Halfway in between. I'll meet you in the middle. And so they seem to stop here. Perhaps his father's sick. Perhaps his father's already on his deathbed. And perhaps their stop there is not that long. Who knows? Perhaps Abraham just wants to honor his father's wishes and they live in Haran for a little while. Regardless, what seems logical to conclude is that they stop in Haran. And the reason is because his father is a worshiper of a pagan god. Okay? And so... It it's significant, though, and, and there's, there's, there's some, I think, some, some really important themes that pop up in when Abraham is called and why Abraham is called from here. So this, the second blank there, I don't know if you got that. Terah is most likely content, uh, content with the worship of other gods, uh, but moves his sons, uh, moves at his son's prompting. So they, they move because Abraham has, has uh, been called by God to go, um, it appears, now, the word east in the biblical text has significant feelings attached to it. Now, you need to understand when you read the text of where Abraham is called from, why that area is really significant. And in order to understand that, you kind of have to go back to Genesis 3.24. So if you look there, I've got it in the pack. I've got it in your packet, anyway. So Genesis 3, 24, he drove out the man, and when is this scene? This is Adam and Eve, right? Being kicked out of the garden. He drove out the man, and at the east uh, of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So it's, it's east, it's on the east side. Why? Because that's where they are, and they don't want to get back, right? So uh, God, kicked, when, they were, when they were moved from the Garden of Eden, they're removed to the east. Okay. Now, uh, r- regionally, we can talk about the location of the Garden of Eden and all that at some other time. But essentially, um, the 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 word east gets associated with being kicked out of the garden. Okay. You've been kicked out, and you've been removed to the east. Case in point, when in the next passage in Genesis four sixteen, when Cain kills Abel, where does he get uh, removed? Cain is moved away, went away from the presence of the Lord, and uh, into the land of nod, which means wandering he 's in the land of wandering and where is he where is he he is he is once again east of of the guard further further east so we're ah sorry come on keep going where 's the map there it goes okay, so probably somewhere in this area he 's out in the wandering area right so here is uh then uh, we have the last one in Genesis eleven two. 2 uh, Remember the Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel? Okay, so where is the Tower of Babel being built? Well, it tells us in Genesis eleven two. And the people migrated from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Guess where the land of Shinar is? Right here. See that? Babylon. Those are the plains of Shinar. And what did they build? The Tower of We call it Babel. We shouldn't. The word in Hebrew, Babel, is also the word for Babylon. It should really be called, we should call it the Tower of Babylon. Because that's exactly what it is. Because that's where it's located. It's in Babylon. Well, where is Abraham when he's called? He's in Babylon. Right? I mean, he's in the Babylonian region. You have to understand, too, that in 1900... In the 1900s, Babylon starts gaining prominence. Babylon, everybody understands who Babylon is. All right? And the people that are receiving the word from Moses as he's writing it down in Genesis and and reading this story in Genesis of their, their inception, they know Babylon. They know good and well who Babylon is. And they understand what, why Babylon is significant. When God removed them from, from the land, when God removed them from, their pre, from his presence in, in Eden, uh, they're moving east. When Cain was removed, he's, he's moving east. But when Abraham is, uh, when people build the Tower of Babel, they're, they're in the east. But when Abraham is called, he's from the east. And he's coming back where? He's coming back west. He's coming back into the land. So the the land for the people as they're reading this, the land that they're about to go in, is for them representative of the Garden of Eden. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. So they're standing on the precipice of going into the land, and they're looking at this land, green and lush, and they have this word. Adam and Eve were kicked out, and they were kicked out to the east. Cain, he was removed, and he was removed to the east the east is where they built the tower of babel where they decided they were going to worship other gods abraham was called from the east back here this is the land that was promised to you now what's the implication then for them what's the command that moses gives to them in deuteronomy or the set of commands what's the big thrust of his point in deuteronomy you remember Take the land. Go in, take the land, and do what with it? Subdue, have dominion over it. Obey God while you're there, right? He tells them in Deuteronomy, when you go into this land, what you're going to be tempted to do is when you start eating from the vineyards that you didn't plant, when you start living in houses that you didn't build, you're going to be tempted to forget the Lord. And that's a problem. Because when you do that, He's going to kick you out. Where is he going to kick him out to? Back to the east. So the east for a Jew going into the land is pagan territory. That's God's punishment is in the east. Everything wicked lies in the east. So geographically, this whole thing is really important for you to understand. And you need to kind of get your cardinal bearings, all right? Which directions are... So even just that word east is, is, is meant to kind of send a chill down your spine as you, as you read it. It's, bad news happens out there. And so the people are, are kind of uh, gathering this. And so it's significant that Abraham, uh, when he is called by God, is called from the east. That's the that last blank. Do you get those blanks down there in the last, in the last few? Questions about that? Comments, concerns, fears, hope streams, expectations. So when you using Palestine and Canaan Palestine. The Palestine, Canaan, promised land, same, same area. Yep. Yep. Go ahead, Jen. So in my generic that your implication is that Eden was in the land Well, Okay. Talk about Eden? Eden. Okay. Now, here's what we're told in Scripture about the location of the Garden of Eden. Four rivers. Two of them are right there on the map. Two of them, we have no idea where they are. Okay? So, um, you... He definitely tells us that the euphrates is i think I think he uses the Euphrates and he says where uh, Babel is babylon doesn 't he say something I think he says something about that he he mentions Babylon at some point and i think i think it's I think he says that in connection to the Euphrates Correct me if i 'm wrong but i i think that's I think that's what he says so we know he 's talking at least approximately about these rivers so a, but a lot of people figure the topography of this map is not like what it was pre-flood. So th- there's that as well that we have to deal with. Regardless, we don't have the other rivers. We don't, we don't know where they, they are or, or where they went or, or what. There's some even that figure that the, the way Genesis is written, the, the Garden of Eden is like an, an elevated place, like kind of at a... A, in an elevation and, uh, and so it, it's really hard to determine but, but my guess would be where's my pointer? Somewhere in this area right by Haran okay somewhere in this area here now regardless of that being removed to the east functions not necessarily as a loca- locale like as a uh, they were exiled to Babylon, okay? Like it would be if you said they were exiled to Babylon. But more, they were moved out to the east, right? So am I taking it too literally? Um, perhaps, yeah. If, I'm, not, I'm not concerned at all where, what geographical location Adam and Eve ended up when they were kicked out. I'm not concerned with that at all. All I'm saying is what the biblical author is, is drawing out is the language east, being a, a bad term, a term that's meant to, to draw you back to a memory, right? It's more the cardinal direction than it is a specific location on the map is, is I guess, the point that I'm making. Now, when we get, and then we get with Cain again, we don't get necessarily a, a, a place, but we get, a, a, again, a, a direction, okay? So he's out in the brown somewhere, all right, wandering, in the land of wandering, um, and then then but then we get the plains of Shinar. They came, and perhaps they came from the east, like in Iran over here, and came into the plains of Shinar, which would be Babylon, and they built the Tower of Babel. Either way, it's again out in the east, and so that term east, every time it appears, you're you're it's it's meant to kind of be like the dentist drill, and just sort of remind you of that. Uh, you know, right? That 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 feeling that you get when you hear certain things, and you just get it sends chills, fingernails on a chalkboard, and so that's what it creates. And the, the biblical authors do this all the time. They, they connect these kind of pieces all the time with these, these just little words that they use or phrases that they use. Day of the Lord is another one of those things that comes up time and time again. And it's meant to send a, or should send a chill down your spine. The problem in Amos we've seen is that, uh, or you will see this week, is that, they, uh, that it doesn't send a chill down their spine. They, they have joy about the day of the Lord. And he's like, why should you be happy about the day of the Lord? You're not one of mine, so you're going to suffer. Right? So, so, right, it, but it's that, it's that word, that, that phrase, and they bring this back over and over. Well, east is one of those. And so um, that's only the point I'm making is out there in the east is, is bad things. Jesus will go out east of the Jordan, and he'll, that's where he'll face the devil. Right? When, they're, when they're dispersed. We talked about this with the, the sons of God. When that people are dispersed from Babel, they're turned over to the sons of God. So out here are the uh, pagan gods that people worship. I'm lost my point anyway, but the out there in the east, around the Mesopotamian region, that's where are the pagan gods. They have free reign. So anybody that's out there is under the control and influence of pagan gods. Does that makes sense. That sort of help answer your question. Any other questions like that? Go ahead. Go ahead. That does get into some end times things, doesn't it? Um, depends on who you ask. Um, uh, so here's what I would say about it I don't think John uses it that way in Revelation. Uh, I think a lot of the major prophets will, the way they describe what John is describing, they, des- they describe in connection with the temple. And so it-, it-, it causes us to have that train of thought and we're, we're walking down that line. So when John describes it, we-, we kind of say, well, he has to be describing it this way. Does that make sense? So, um, so I think it, it, it looks that way. However, if you look at the last half of the book of Revelation, really the last from about chapter 12 on to the end of the book of Revelation, um, John begins doing something in that book where he shows the power and influence of Satan. And when Satan is kicked out in chapter 12, he's kicked out down to earth, and it says, Woe to you, earth and, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great fury. He knows that his time is short. And so the devil begins doing something right there. He stands on the sea and the earth. So it means he has like control, right? He stands there and out of the sea comes the beast. So, uh, And the beast is described to us as having a mortal wound, appearing as though dead, but appears to resurrect. And it says that he has the power of Satan. He's empowered by Satan. And then we see a false prophet come along. uh, And the false prophet says, yes, worship the beast, worship the beast, worship the beast who had the mortal wound and now he's alive. Um, And we see worshipers of the beast. And and what John has shown is that Satan is playing the God, the father figure. And he has created an object of worship or he has he an has object of worship who also has a mortal wound and has risen essentially from the dead, which is a Christ figure. And here is the second beast or the false prophet saying, yes, worship the beast, worship the beast. But then what he does is he creates or he shows Babylon, which is he, he, he describes it as really the city of the world. It's everybody who's worshiping the beast is Babylon. So that's globally, that's worldwide. But his point, he, he shows Babylon as a city, it's a city of sin, and we know that from the themes appearing already in Genesis that Babylon functions as the city of sin. And so he's showing Babylon. Here's the city of sin and wickedness, and it's the name that's used for the entire global world that worships the beast. But he also describes it as a harlot. Okay? Flip that, though, and he describes Jerusalem as the city of the holy and righteous, the opposite of Babylon, and also as what? What else does he describe him as? A bride, So, not the city of sin and a harlot, but the city of the holy ones and a bride. And so, John's point is not, I don't think, to, for you to focus on a certain city, but for you to use that city as the, the stand-in for the people of God that don't bow down to the, the beast and take his mark, but instead, what he says in 14, take the mark of Christ, and that means that they worship him and they give him their allegiance. And what you see is the, the, the city descending, the people, I think it's the people that he's describing again there, because he, de- he also describes them there as a bride prepared for her husband. And I think that's a people that he's describing there. But, so that, that, that's the point. But that being said, I have lots of friends on, on another, in another position that would say they interpret that differently, and that's fine. I mean, that's the reason it's, Stinking hard to read Revelation. (laughs) You end up walking away with uh, lots of different opinions, but I think that's what's going on there. That gets probably a lot into the weeds of Revelation, and I didn't necessarily mean to, but does that answer your question, though? Yeah. Go ahead. Any other questions like that before we go? What? Yeah. Let's go to Revelation. Um, All right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm so grateful for an opportunity to just come together and, and look at um, even just the beginnings of what you had begun, have begun to do uh, in the life of Abraham and the promises that you're going to make to him and that extend all the way to uh, all of your people. They're fulfilled in Jesus, and um, what a significant thing that is, and what, a, what an amazing gift that you've given to us through Christ. Um, to be considered your sons. That's uh, so bizarre, and we can't even begin to wrap our minds around um, that fact, that reality, uh, much less why you did that. Um, But you did, and we celebrate that, and we rejoice in it. I pray that you would just continue to give us wisdom and understanding as we seek to um, further dive into uh, what you're doing in the Old Testament and what it means for us and why it matters for our lives today. I pray that you would help us in our study. Um, Go with us this evening, keep us safe. Pray that you would allow us to be a part of the ministry of your kingdom in this world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.